0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. It is, of course, Black History Month here in 2021, but as we all become more critical of the ways our nation's history is told and remembered, here on Detroit Today, we're going to spend some time probing to find out what important voices are missing from the popular Black History narratives. This hour, we are kicking off the first of several conversations we're going to have in the coming weeks with writers at The Atlantic. Now, that publication has just launched a really exciting initiative called The Inheritance Project, and its goal is to explore the legacy and experiences of Black Americans that have been left out of the history books for far too long. Later in the show, I'm going to talk with writer Clint Smith about his contribution to the project, which is a really interesting piece that looks at a New Deal program that was intended to preserve the memories and stories of people who had actually experienced slavery in our nation. But first, here to help set the stage and provide some context for this new series is Jillian White. She is the managing editor at The Atlantic. Jillian, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So let's start with uh, just a brief explainer of what The Inheritance Project is and talk about the name. I'm always curious about how we come up with the way that uh, we describe this kind of journalism.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So The Inheritance Project, you know, the introduction you gave is exactly right. It's the goal of the project is to fill in the pages of American history of history in general with the, with the story of black people, Um, you know, as the magazine of the American idea at the Atlantic, we, look at American history a lot. We think about American history a lot. Um, and Black people, though we know them to have been foundational in building this country literally, but also figuratively creating the engine that allowed for our economy, um, adding to culture, et cetera, et cetera, they are curiously missing from the, creative, from the creation myth of America. So this is trying to do what should have been done a long time ago, which is infuse Black people, their lives, their contributions, and what they endured Um, back into that narrative and creating a more complex narrative. Um, And inheritance really came from the idea of thinking about what we were trying to do here um, and thinking about the world that we live in. So we were thinking a lot about the world and the stories and the narratives that we have inherited from our ancestors and what our children and what the next generation will inherit from us. And thinking about the fact that the truth, complex and ugly as it may be sometimes, is the best thing that they can inherit a world where they truly understand what their place is and that things are diverse and complicated um and also beautiful and that by knowing all of that history and by having the full scope of what this country is and how it came to be only then can they really create a better future for themselves and then their children
0: Hmm. So, so you've got several writers involved with the project, of course, and one of them is Clint Smith, who we're going to talk up with a little later in this hour. I'm really excited uh, for the conversation with him because of uh, the subject matter, uh, the unearthing of these uh, these slave narratives, which I think are such key pieces of, of the history of this country and, of course, the history of Afri- African Americans. Uh, but, but talk a little about the different stories that uh, yeah. will be included in this project.
1: So what we release starting on Tuesday is just chapter one. This project is going to run for 18 months to two years. So there will be several more chapters coming out. Um, So while we're starting in Black History Month, this is not necessarily a Black History Month project. We firmly believe at the Atlantic that every day is Black History Day. Every month is Black History Month. So some of the stories that are launching in Chapter One, as you mentioned, Clint's amazing piece. There's another wonderful piece by Van Newkirk that traces the legacy of the Voting Rights Act um, in conjunction with uh, the life of his mother, which is such a beautiful piece that I really urge people to read it. There's a piece by Anna Holmes about a little-known children's magazine put out by W.E.B. Du Bois called The Brownies Book, um, which I actually just read aloud to my own child. Um, it was, it's, really inc- it's a really incredible history of the way that black children were depicted or not um, in American literature and how Du Bois tried to rectify that um, and give them a place to see themselves. There's Jamel Hill um, talking about Kurt Flood and what he tried to do and what he created um, in terms of free agency. So we're not just focusing on history, you know, in the rear view. We're talking a lot about the ways in which Black people have affected history, have affected culture, have affected change, you know, all the way up to the present day and looking into the future.
0: Yeah. And and the idea of these stories being hidden. I mean, w- one of the things that I think is is really important to note is that uh, – it doesn't have to be sort of an intentional hiding. That that too often uh, we we restrict discussion of racism and inequality to the idea of people doing things quite purposely. And and in some cases, there's no question that that's the case. But w- one of the things that I think is really interesting about this work is it really reflects the way that institutionally. Uh, African American experiences, African American stories, uh, the, the the first person sort of ownership of those stories and narratives uh, is is subjugated in this in a, in our country. That that um, that despite the presence of uh, strong African American storytellers, despite efforts to make sure that African-American history is included in uh, the telling of American history. There are these these very powerful, consistent institutional forces that just uh, keep these stories submerged and keep them away from, uh, I guess, the master narrative uh, of, of our country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Clint will get into this a lot. I know you're talking to him a bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, You have to think a lot, he has said this so many times, you have to think a lot about who these stories were being told to and then who was kind of filtering those stories through a specific lens and putting them out into the world. You know, the fact of the matter is that for a very, very long time, for pretty much the entire known history of the United States being the United States, um, you know, everything has been filtered through the lens of white people and largely through the lens of white supremacy. So a lot of this history, a lot of the history of what was done to indigenous peoples, a lot of the history of what was done to black people in America does not paint white people in a really great light. Um, It is complicated and upsetting and, you know, telling the truth about that, telling the real nuance of those stories. And it's not just about the trauma of those things. Right. It's not just about telling the story of slavery. If you were to tell the true, full story of black people and of indigenous people you would have to talk about their brilliance and all of the things they accomplished and how inventive they were and all of those things, how much, how much like wonderful kind of thought and invention came out of those communities and how much of that has been baked into America, how America has been able to progress because of people of color. And I think that is a very scary thing for a group of people who have for a really long time wanted to hold on to power and kind of be the people who are moving the country forward so i think that's another part of it it's not just wanting to suppress um this idea of horrible things that were done by their ancestors it's also this idea of you know having to share the credit for how this country came to be a superpower and how this country came to be such a you know in the ways that it is wonderful a wonderful place and that is largely due to the work and the thoughts and the efforts um, and the inventions of people of color mm.
0: uh, It's also, I think, worth noting that it's a big deal for a publication like The Atlantic to take on the the sharing of these stories and the confronting of uh, the 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 ignorance about uh, about these stories in in our history and in our present. And that doesn't happen. Ten years ago, I don't think that doesn't certainly doesn't happen. Thirty or, or forty years ago, uh, frankly, uh, you as managing editor of that publication, as an African American woman, that doesn't happen. Uh, Ten or thirty or fifty years ago, there is something about this moment that that makes this more possible. I think than maybe it has ever been.
1: I think that's absolutely right. You know, a huge thing we talked about while we were coming up with this project is what responsibility. Um, The Atlantic has to do this work. We talk a lot about how one of our founding ideas was to be a magazine dedicated to abolition, um, which is true. This was a magazine that one of its founding arguments was that people should not be enslaved in America. And we have a responsibility to live up to that and to live up to representing and arguing for and thinking deeply about the the place of that same group of people in the country now, but you're exactly right. You know, I've been at the Atlantic for seven years. And in that time, I've seen the newsroom change so much. Um, My role has changed so much. (laughs) And I wanna be very clear that a project like this one is not born out of the brain of one person. And a project like this is not possible without a newsroom that is diverse and where those ideas of people of color, of writers of color, of editors of color, are heard and given the space to grow and flourish.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Jillian White. She's the managing editor of the Atlantic. We're talking about a new project uh, that that magazine is undertaking called the Inheritance Project, whose goal uh, is to tell the parts of history that many of us just are never told about to Unearth and celebrate the legacy and experiences of black Americans that have just been left out of American history for. A really long time. In a little bit, we're going to talk with Clint Smith, one of the staff writers uh, at The Atlantic and a contributor to this project, uh, about his piece. Uh, it is titled We Mourn for All We Do Not Know. Uh, it is about a 1930s government program to try to preserve the narratives, the first person narratives, of people who had actually experienced slavery in this country and the ways in which uh, those narratives were never sort of elevated to the place uh, in our conversations about race and history uh, that they should be. If you want to join the conversation, though, uh, give us a call. Tell us how you're looking at and thinking about American history these days. Uh, Have the events of the last year around the insurrection, around white supremacy and the Black Lives Matter movement, have they caused you to rethink or challenge your own understanding of American history? Uh, What parts of our history do you think we need to retell or tell in really different ways? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Um, uh, Jillian, I I also want to talk a little about uh, the potential Reaction to this kind of work, we saw the New York Times last year publish their 1619 public uh, project. Or actually, it was two years ago, uh, and they got a lot of pushback from people who didn't want to confront our nation's past, who wanted to challenge the facts that were included uh, in the work. What, what what's your expectation for a publication like The Atlantic, which it, it may surprise some people still? Uh, to see you take on subject matter this way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if you are a black journalist um, and talking at all about the place of black people in society, (laughs) you are always prepared for a certain level of let's call it negativity um, that will come your way. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is the responsibility of journalism. This is the responsibility of this publication. This is the responsibility of me as a black woman at a really, really old publication that focuses on these ideas. Um, So we are incredibly careful in what we put out there. We think deeply, we fact check, we do all of that stuff. (laughs) Um, So when our reporting goes out, I feel incredibly confident in it. um, And I feel incredibly confident in the writers and editors working on this project. So if people have a problem with the project because they have a problem with confronting history, then that's exactly the reason that we are doing it. Um, And I will take that heat.
0: Uh, again, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Adrian in Detroit. Adrian. Good, what's on your good mind?
2: morning. May I say that I every time I listen to your show I've learned something that <laughs> I can pass on to other people and I always say did you know?
0: Oh, well, that's I, very nice of you to say.
2: <laughs> I need to share this. At 66, I remember having a reader when I was in primary school and it showed a picture of a blonde little girl and her brother and I forgot her sister and And I can remember that the sentence that say, run, Susan, run. Look at Susan Run. And I looked at Susan. She didn't look like me. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the home in their neighborhood. That didn't look like I lived. And I really didn't know why I could not relate. But what I would love to read is this book um, that the uh, lady just mentioned, uh, Brownie. But and it, and for me, 66, I'm like glad that I'm finally saying, oh my God, I, there were books that I could relate to. Because watching that blind girl and run Susan Run, those were things that i could relate to the home mm. and uh, the clothes and uh, and the toys they had we didn't have any of those
0: yeah yeah adrian i really appreciate uh, the call and you sharing that perspective uh, jillian white uh, uh, listening to her talk reminds me of something you recently told the atlantic's editor-in-chief jeffrey goldberg and you said uh, for so many black americans history is a dead end and i think adrian adrian's experience really reinforces that we don't we don't see ourselves in the telling of uh, of the american story
1: yeah i mean i think that's exactly true you think about the past as you said the past decade 15 years Um, and how much more you're seeing people of color, black people on TV in so many different capacities, right? We can now look at TV and we see the vice president of the United States, right? Who is a black woman. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember when Barack Obama was campaigning um, and seeing him out with Michelle Obama and just thinking about trying to wrap my head around the idea of seeing a black family in the White House and couldn't quite grasp it. And I was, you know, a young adult, but an adult. Mm. Um, And you think about how much that infects your day-to-day life. It infects your thinking and your belief of what is possible. And then I think about my daughter and my niece and my nephew and what they will think of as jobs for them or places they can be or places they belong just from the sheer fact of seeing themselves there, seeing people who look like them there. Um, And it really is incredible. Mm
0: -hmm. Again, Adrian, thanks so much for the call and uh, the thoughts. Let's go to Kim. In Detroit Kim welcome to the show
3: yes can you hear me okay I can okay so I'd like to posit it um, to the guests um, and because this brings in mind of course the 1619 project out of the New York Times
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, and uh, I would think that these projects should be the basis for a truth and reconciliation uh, project for the United States to come to grips with settler colonialism and people being enslaved mm. And I think it's it's going to be long and arduous because, I mean, even South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation, which was just over for like, you know, concerning history of like basically 100 years right. of, of, of apartheid, this goes back centuries, of course. But I think that these projects can be the basis of some real serious truth telling and coming, coming to grips with history. Right. Because history is, you know, as you were saying before, it's not only is it not a dead end; we're living with it. Right. So, but I would like to like the I know the guest has an, enough to do already. We all do, <laughs> <laughs> but the, but these projects I think can be the basis of something that can really. That's a.
0: Uh, it's a patient. wonderful. It's a wonderful idea to inject into the conversation, Kim. I'm glad you. I'm glad you called. It, it does raise the question of, you know, I, I think as journalists we always wonder what the. Potential impact is of our work and what the purpose of our work is beyond just uh, publication. But but the idea that that uh, this work, that the sixteen nineteen project, that the journalism that's happening now that couldn't happen before, maybe pushes America to uh, to a new space in terms of confronting uh, all of the the things in our history. It's a really interesting idea, Jillian.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. The way that change happens is slow. You know, (laughs) it is people realizing that they don't quite understand history the way they thought they did and then feeling the urge to act upon it. Um, You know, I think a lot about, as the caller said, we think a lot about the ways that other countries have dealt with the horrors of their past. Right. You go to other countries and there has been some level of the government of the country, actually trying to officially deal, officially apologize, officially do something um, to acknowledge the fact that this horror um, existed in their past, and to say we don't want it to happen again. That never happened in the United States, and that's of course in the forefront of our minds as we try to bring all of this to the forefront. What is missing from the actual reckoning around race in America? But you know, I think a lot about Kenetically Coates's piece on reparations, mm-hmm. um, which happened in 2014. And he wrote that piece. It was a huge hit. And it took six years. But then he found himself, you know, in front of Congress, Mm -hmm. talking about it as they looked at a bill for reparations. I am not by any means saying that that is what will come out of this project or 1619 or anything else. But I do think that it shows the power of forcing people to look at and read and reckon with what has actually happened in our history. And I think journalism has the ability to take that unique responsibility on, and that's why we continue to do
4: it. Mm.
0: Okay, uh, Jillian White, Managing Editor of the Atlantic. Uh, Really great to have you here and congratulations on the launch of this important journalism project. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to talk with Clint Smith, who's a staff writer at the Atlantic, about his piece for the Inheritance Project, which delves into stories of slavery immortalized in the 1930s Federal Writers Project. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
5: WDET delivers trusted news,
2: inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences
5: that empower the community.
2: 1019 WDET.
5: Detroit's NPR station.
0: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks for joining us. Our next guest recently took a deep dive into uncovering the stories of formerly enslaved Americans documented in a 1930s government initiative that you have likely never heard of. It was called the Federal Writers Project, and it was part of a 1935 job creation effort during the FDR administration. The project contained various photographs and manuscripts that were documenting all kinds of American life. But in his new piece, Atlantic staff writer Clint Smith focuses on one set of stories specifically, the slave narratives, which is composed of more than 2,300 first-person accounts of slavery. Joining us now to talk about what he learned from delving into this really rich collection of interviews and narratives is staff writer at The Atlantic, Clint Smith. Clint, welcome to Detroit Today.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. So you start your piece by describing a visit you took last year to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington. Can you talk about what you saw on the bottom level of that museum in the area devoted to showing the history of slavery?
5: Yeah. So on the bottom floor of the museum, for anyone who's been to the museum, it's this remarkable, expansive um Obviously, decades long in the making pro- project um, that documents um, the the history of Black life in this country, and the bottom floor is sort of singularly dedicated to tracing the story of enslavement. And so, you you walk past Thomas Jefferson, a statue of Thomas Jefferson, someone who's typically um, venerated, and you see behind him uh, a bunch of bricks that represent the the hundreds of people he enslaved. You walk past uh, a, a cabin that actually enslaved people slept in. You walk past uh, a stone block that actual enslaved people were sold from. And down the hallway, there's a room um, where you hear these voices, these voices sort of emanating around you. Uh, and those are the voices of people who were interviewed for the Federal Writers Project between 1936 and 1938. And it's this remarkable treasure trove of information because, as as was mentioned, it's 2,300 people um, who are... Uh, who've had their stories documented, and and so often the stories that we hear uh, around slavery have been Frederick Douglass and mm-hmm. uh, Harriet Jacobs and um, you know Henry Box Brown and these stories of these remarkable, exceptional people, often who um, you know using the Underground Railroad or some other metro, some other means escaped slavery and have these incredible, exceptional stories to tell. But part of what I argue is that these pieces in the Federal Writers Project, these stories in the Federal Writers Project are so important because they tell the stories of of ordinary people. They tell the stories of people who weren't quote unquote exceptional. Um, But that lack of exceptionalism doesn't make their stories any less uh, worthwhile engaging with. In fact, I argue that they give us a more clear sense of what the Totality of slavery and the landscape of slavery was like, uh, because not everybody was Frederick Douglass and not everybody <laughs> right. was Harriet Jacobs. And, you know, like they these were people were very special people in very particular sets of circumstances. And in order to really understand, you know, I I love reading the narrative of Frederick Douglass um, more than anyone. But but we should also understand that that is not representative of the sort of larger landscape of what enslavement did. And so what these stories do is provide us. With with insight into the sort of daily quotidian nature, both the brutality and the humanity um, of slavery from from those who experienced it firsthand.
4: Mm.
0: So so I, I have spent uh, more time in the last five or six years digging into uh, my family's past to try to uh, to try to put together you know missing pieces of the story about how. Uh, how we got from slavery to to where we are now and uh, the further I go back and and as you get closer to identifying relatives uh, people who came before you who were enslaved there, there's a feeling of uh, of both, excitement and dread that, that I have experienced over and over again. I mean, literally like the hair will stand up on the back of my neck sometimes when you find a name or find a document that, that points to something. And I imagine that if I could hear the voices mm. of those people or even read a transcript of something that they said, That I I would have those feelings, you know, to the to the you know to an exponentially larger degree than Mm -hmm. than than I already have. So I'm really wondering, for you, what feeling this this evoked when you could hear those voices, when you could sort of just put, uh, you know, put to uh to to these names, you know, a voice or or a narrative that uh, that reflected their life.
5: Yeah, I mean it's in, it's incredibly special. Um, you know, in the the museum, not every single one of the sort of twenty three hundred um, narratives and interviews have recordings alongside of them. Some of them do, but but not all of them. So the ones that you hear in the museum are a mix of of actors who are reading the words um, from the transcript of in, formerly enslaved folks, and mm-hmm. and some of them are the enslaved folks themselves, mm. um, and. And it's just, I mean, it's its powerful. Part of what I try to remind people is that the history we tell ourselves was a long time ago was not, in fact, that long ago at all. Right. You know, my my grandfather's grandfather was born into slavery. And so there will be these moments where my my three-year-old son is sitting on my grandfather's lap. And I imagine my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap. and And I'm reminded that, you know, in the scope of human history, slavery was just like a few seconds ago. You know, like, and so the... There's this sort of emotional proximity, I feel. And Mm -hmm. then to consider that these interviews were done in the late 1930s with people who, you know, these are folks who were, the majority of the folks who were interviewed were people who were children um, as enslavement came to an end uh, toward the end of the Civil War. And, And to just think about how, I mean, there are still thousands, if not millions of people around this country who who loved and were raised by and had relationships with um, people who were born into slavery. Mm-hmm. And and it really disabuses us of this notion that um, slavery is singularly this thing of the past that has no bearing on what the contemporary landscape of inequality looks like. Um, you know, we know that from historian David Blight that the 4 million enslaved Black people uh, in 1860 were more than were worth more than every bank factory and railroad combined. Mm-hmm. The greatest catalyst of of economic wealth and prosperity that this country has ever known were the bodies of enslaved people. And the and after the Civil War, these people who created this this previously unimaginable wealth for this country were given none of it. And and we want to pretend as if that thing is simply something that we watch in a movie that we watch in 12 years a slave or that we read in Frederick Douglass and we say, Oh, that was horrific, but it actually, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with the country we live in. Now we're so different. We had a black president, we have a black vice, (laughs) uh, black woman, vice president, and it's stories of in the same way that uh, stories of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs um, are at once incredibly important. Um, This I'm thinking about that as I think about, you know, the way that Barack Obama or Kamala Harris and their ascent, um, or Oprah or whoever, you know, name a black person um, are used in a way to otherwise um, delegitimize claims that there is a sort of larger set of oppressive forces that exist. But the truth is that stories of exceptionalism have always or systems of oppression have always relied on stories of exceptionalism in order to legitimate an otherwise oppressive yeah. system. Um, and so, so I, you know, I, all that's to say, when you, when you read these stories and you realize that these are people who were living in, in the thirties and in the forties and, and that there, again, there are people alive today who, who were raised by these people, you know, so that in the piece I interviewed the three descendants of people who were, um, who were interviewed in the transcripts right. and, and, you know, it was powerful for me to read these. Um, and, you know, I have no, uh, direct sort of, uh, connection with my own lineage to these transcripts, but, um, but I can, you know, I, I could only imagine even as I was having these conversations with, um, these men and women, the, what it meant for them to see the, these photographs of these people, what it meant for them to hear their voices, what it meant for them to, um, you know, read, read their words. It was each, every single person I interviewed, um, many people for, for the piece and ended up focusing predominantly on three. Um, but every single person I spoke to said it was just so powerful and so moving. And and as you said, the, the hair stood up on their arms. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm talking with Clint Smith, the staff writer at the Atlantic who recently authored an article that is going to appear in the Atlantic's March 2021 print edition with the headline, We Mourn for All We Do Not Know. It is part of the Inheritance Project, an effort by the Atlantic uh, to unearth and to celebrate stories of the African-American experience in our country, stories that have been left out of so much of our telling of history Uh, in this country. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and let us know how you're thinking about America's history these days. Are you thinking about the things that we have traditionally left out and why they were left out? Have you thought about ways we should be changing the way we talk about history to include more of the experiences Uh, Of African Americans. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We've already got a a fair number of people queued up to participate in the conversation, Clint, but before we get to them, I I do want to talk just a little about the federal effort to get these stories. Uh, and preserve them. I mean, uh, the 1930s is one of my favorite times in history to think about what the federal government was up to. I mean, it, it's a time, of course, of incredible uh, American economic suffering, uh, mm-hmm. universal suffering. But the government's response to that suffering reached a level of creativity. I'm not sure uh, it did before before or after uh and so i want to talk just a little about this federal writers project and what the purpose was uh of that project in preserving these stories but then talk about why they weren't uh, disseminated as widely as they should have why why have most americans never heard of this
5: yeah i think there's a there's a couple reasons so um so the origins is uh, stories as as you mentioned these were done um following the great depression. And, and it was both done, um, as a means of, of deep creating an archive of, of stories and, um, interviews of people who lived through, um, exceptional times in American history. Um, and so formerly enslaved people were, were one group of folks who were interviewed, but, um, they, they interviewed people, um, across the country who had experienced a, a range of different iterations of, of what America has been, um, and the economic part of it was that it was meant to be a jobs program, right? Like it was, it, there were many, many out of work writers and journalists and artists. Um, and part of what they were hoping to do was put those folks back to work. And so uh, they hired these people um, and they did it in, I believe, 17, 16 or 17 states. Um, and so they went and began collecting these stories, but, but there were issues with the sort of collection process, process um, in part because, you know, this is also the 1930s in the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. And so many of the people who were uh, tasked with collecting these stories carried their own deep biases, their own deep prejudices, their own, um, their own you know, pretty clear racism. Um, and that was imbued and that animated the way that they, approached the um, the formerly enslaved people, the way that they transcribed the language. And so you know, a lot of historians who write about the Federal Writers Project will talk about the dialect um, in which the through which the, the interviews are portrayed. Um, and on the one hand, a lot of these formerly enslaved folks were were often illiterate. they often hadn't received because of the the insidiousness of slavery, often hadn't received a lot of formal education, if any. Um, On the other hand, there was also an effort by some of these interviewers to purposefully paint um, the people they were interviewing as as ignorant, Mm -hmm. um, as dumb. um, And and so they would write in ways that sort of emphasized um, uh, and seemed to focus on and magnify a a sort of lack of literacy, um, magnify the sort of um, colloquial and sometimes even... um, uh, the sort of language that you can't always even read, um, and understand or understand as, as you try to read it. And so they, you know, in what ways that they consider to be, you know, as historian Catherine Stewart writes, quote, authentically black, um, which is loaded with its own set of, mm-hmm. um, you know, racist preconceptions. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of it. Part of it is that the interviews are, are conducted and, and transcribed in ways that, um, are often animated by the racism of the people doing the interview and uh, then doing the transcribing. The other part of it is that if you just consider the context of the moment, if you're a form an elderly, formerly enslaved person living in the South um, and you have this white person you have never met coming up to your house and saying, I work for the federal government and I want to talk to you, the, <laughs> the power dynamics in place are are clear from from that moment. And so, you know, there might have been people who were telling, who thought that um, these workers were um, someone who might take away their, uh, the check that they got, the sure. federal assistance that they got. Um, so they might have told them stories about what slavery was or wasn't that fit into what they thought that person wanted to hear. Because at that moment, their primary concern is like, don't take away my federal Assistance, right? Because I'm there. These are people who are barely subsisting to begin with, and so there's the power dynamic. There's the lack of uh, trust between uh, older Black folks and and the state, given their experience of what the state has done and sanctioned in their lives, and so all of that is sort of happening as the federal riders project is being conducted. And then after it's out, I think the people of folks of bad faith um, are. Didn't want to use them because they said that um, you know there's there there's a school of thought uh, from historians uh, in the sort of a historian named Ulrich B Phillips, um, who is sort of famous for. Uh, writing in the early 20th century that slavery was a, a largely benevolent institution mm-hmm. a civilizing institution um, that the relationship between enslavers and the enslaved was was largely good and uh, people who are talking about the horrors of slavery um, that th- those stories are overblown and that was people might not remember but that is the predominant narrative that existed around what slavery was in the early 20th century. And it wasn't until the civil rights movement in which, uh, academics and historians uh, were pushed by, by activists and inspired by activists and civil rights workers, um, to think differently and to approach the archive differently. Um, and to sort of bring back these stories of firsthand testimony from, from the enslaved. Cause previously the, the primary source documents that were being used were the diaries of plantation owners and the, um, you know, letters sent from our founding fathers and, um, in, and the point that historians started making during the civil rights movement is that, you know, Ulrich B. Phillips and those folks said, well, we can't use the, 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 um, Federal Writers Project work because, you know, they, they aren't objective. They were too close to the subject of slavery. Their proximity was too, um, too much to be object. I mean, and, and, you know, one has to interrogate even the notion of like what it means to be objective or mm-hmm. not objective around the issue of, of slavery. Um, but, uh, So they began um, saying that you know, with given, we know that there are problems with these primary sources, but there are problems with every primary source document, right? Like you don't take, you can't just read a a diary of a a a man who worked on a plantation or who owned a plantation and take that at face value. You have to consider the biases that exist in that document, and those are the documents we've been using for for decades now. So why can't we, um, you know, use these documents from uh, formerly enslaved folks knowing that there are, are limits to the ways in which they can be used and that they have to be used in conversation with other documents but that's part of what it means to be a historian part of it is that you recognize that people bring different biases um, to uh, to every document and that those biases are carrying are those documents are carrying the biases of the people who who um, whose stories they're telling. And and that's just part of the nature of the work. And so they began in the sort of late 20th century, began becoming more mainstreamed. And and now, especially in the sort of post, in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, I think in the same way that historians were inspired by the work that was going on um, during the civil rights movement, a lot of historians have been revisiting these stories to say, again, to, to my previous point, like we shouldn't simply rely on the narratives of a few autobiographies of enslaved people who escaped freedom to understand what slavery was. We have this remarkable treasure trove of thousands of first person accounts and and we should take those seriously.
0: Okay. We're going to take another quick break and when we come back, we are going to hear from you, the listeners uh, about American history, what's left out of it, how we incorporate more of the voices of African-Americans Caleb in Livonia, Bernadette in Old Redford, Billy in Gross Point Park, Greg in Midtown. We will get to you next. Stay with us for more. Detroit right today. And my guest is Clint Smith, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of a new piece titled We Mourn for All We Do Not Know. It is part of The Inheritance Project, which is kicking off at The Atlantic, a uh, deep dive into stories that have been left out of American history, stories of African-Americans, stories of African-American legacy and experience. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-577. 1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Greg in Midtown. Greg, what's on your mind?
4: Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Hey. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, as a kid, um, in the 50s, early 50s, I remember going to Eastern Market uh, with my uncle, my parents, you know, grandparents. And uh, in the 60s, um, there's a, a produce market just across adjacent to uh, our hurt and in the basement of that building, uh, friends of mine, hippie friends of mine, we went there and discovered a railroad track in the basement with oil lanterns, Hmm. which was very curious. Um, Fast forward many years, uh, Rocky of Rocky's peanut company uh, has published a book. And in that book, it explains that Eastern Market was early, very much earlier, a graveyard. I wonder, did any of you know that?
0: No, I did not know that. Uh, yeah.
4: And during the Civil War. And what it was, they would bring the bodies and they would put them in train cars. Wow. And they would go from the foot of what is now Rosa Parks Boulevard mm-hmm. to Eastern Market. and um vice versa, the cars would return and they would go to this basement. But as you know, there isn't there is a railroad in Detroit. Um I'm thinking uh it crosses, it goes to Jefferson, but the railroad is sunken. Yes. And at the foot of Rosa Parks Boulevard is actually the thinnest part of the Detroit River. And in the winter time,
0: uh, you could cross yeah. right.
4: Yeah. And the slaves would get in in these cars and go back to, um, you know, they'd load coffins to take back, and then they would get out and they would cross the river to Canada.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, it's a, it's an example of how, uh, in this instance, there was an actual railroad that was used as part of uh, the Underground Railroad. Uh, and of course, Detroit is a, a very significant site for, uh, for the Underground Railroad uh, because of its proximity to Canada. Uh, Greg, I really appreciate uh, you calling and, and uh, interjecting that, that part of uh, our history into the conversation. It's, again, something that not enough people know and not enough uh, of our uh, institutions uh, lift up those stories. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for the call. Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind?
2: I listened to a recording of the slave narratives and one that really sticks in my mind was about a slave who told the story of having uh, seen a person's eyes burned because he dared to read. Mm. My library card has been my passport to an enriched life, Mm. and I would urge more people to take advantage of our opportunity to read and write.
0: Yeah. yeah, Bernadette, uh, love the call and the comments. Uh, Clint Smith, why aren't these slave, slave narratives, for instance, part of curriculum around the country. I mean, it's a pretty basic uh, question that I think, I don't know uh, what, what's the reason that they haven't made their way into the education uh, of American children so that they understand what this was like.
5: Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons. I think the sort of residue of the way they were described throughout the early 20th century Mm -hmm. uh, still informs Uh, the the way that they are engaged with in the sort of larger public discourse, right? There's been a a shift recently um, in the the scholarly space and in the academic space, but that hasn't necessarily translated um, into the sort of larger um, K-12 educational uh, infrastructure. Um, I also think that part of it is that some of these S- some of them are hard to read. Like they're like incredibly difficult emotionally. Mm. Um, they're, in- they can be because of, of what we talked about before and the way that they were transcribed, they can be incredibly difficult to, to simply read, um, uh, because of the, the sort of way that they attempt to portray the language that they were using. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I, I was a high school English teacher before I was a, before I was a writer, mm. uh, And I think all the time about the ways that we don't give our teachers the time and space and resources with which to learn how to most effectively teach certain things, right? So, And the implications of this are vast. According to a 2018 study from the Southern Poverty Law Center, only 8% of high school seniors were able to identify slavery as the central cause of the Civil War right? Like 8% when, mm. when it's clear, right? It, all you have to do is look at the primary source documents from the, the mid-19th century with, or like the declarations of Confederate secession in which, you know, in 1861, a state like Mississippi said that they are seceding from the Union, uh, quote, because slavery is the greatest material interest, their greatest material interest in the world um, and one that they can't abandon. And so, you know, it is not unclear about why the Confederacy seceded from the Union because they say it, for themselves. But that's an example of the sort of primary source documents that that teachers just don't have the, well, often don't have the time to. When I was a high school English teacher, it was we just go, 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 go. <laughs> and we weren't given the sort of professional development opportunities um, that would have often made us more, given us the toolkit with which to, to one, learn about these things and then teach them as well. So part of it, I I, I can't blame teachers for this because I think that, if more teachers were given the time and space and resources and training to think about how to best you know, what sort of pedagogy um, was 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 best in terms of bringing these. Um, stories to the classroom and training teachers how to uh, to do it in ways that are thoughtful in ways that are scaffolded in ways that are age appropriate Um, Then I think you'd have many teachers who were excited and willing but first you know the first thing we have to do is get it on people's radar and and that's part of what I'm hoping this article can do yeah
0: okay Clint Smith uh, of the Atlantic really great to have this conversation with you thanks so much for joining us
5: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: And uh, you can check out Clint's article, of course, in the March 2021 uh, edition of The Atlantic. And there's lots of other uh, stuff to come in the Inheritance Project as well. Lots of other articles already in that project. And uh, as Jillian White said earlier in the show, uh, they are going to be doing this for quite some time. So don't miss all of the really wonderful work uh, that went into this journalism project. OK, that is going to do it for us this week. Come back on Monday when Chad Livengood of Cranes Detroit Business comes by to talk about whether business leaders in Michigan want civility. What should they be doing with state Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirkey right now? Should they be ushering him out the door because of some of the things that he said and is doing this week? This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.